Good morning, everybody. It's good to be together again. You're getting quite good at responding. It's quite nice to get a reply. I know some of the teachers think it's a bit schooly, but it makes me feel welcomed anyway. We're going to start with some words from the second letter to the church at Corinth, which we normally associate with the end of the service. So we'll just do things a little bit back to front this morning. Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, goodbye. Aim for perfection, listen to my appeal, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And now we come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We praise you, Lord, for the wonder and mystery of who you are. You are indeed the ruler of all creation, the unseen power behind all that is, the origin of every idea the source of all beauty, the ground of our very being. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And as your children, we meet in Christ's name to offer our worship and praise, to draw a little closer to your glory, to to listen a little more intently for your voice, to open ourselves afresh to your spirit, to be refreshed and renewed for your service, to grow in wisdom and in faith. What are mortals that you are mindful of them, mere human beings that you care for them? As we become aware of the wonder of being in your presence, so we each become aware of our own shortcomings. The moments when we have closed our ears to your voice, closed our eyes to the reality that surrounds us, closed our hearts to the demands of giving or receiving grace and love. In the stillness and the quiet, Please touch us and open our hearts, our eyes, our ears, our minds, and our lives to the healing touch of your grace and mercy, (coughs) renewing, restoring, and revealing the depths and wonder of your saving love. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Please accept our prayers, which we offer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Three readings from Scripture. First from the Old Testament, from the book of Samuel, the second book of Samuel, and then two from the Gospels. 
Let us listen for the word of God. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and did obeisance. David said, Mephibosheth, he answered, I am your servant. David said to him, Don't be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table always. He did obeisance and said, What is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog such as I am? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food to eat. But your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. And in the Gospel according to John, at chapter 8. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. 
Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. And then finally from the Gospel according to Matthew, at chapter 26, beginning at verse 6. Now while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, Why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a very large sum and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God amongst us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. So this is the third of our series of services looking at aspects of Christian doctrine. And it's not going to surprise you, now that we're at week three, that I'm going to tell you it's an enormous topic and that I have several large fat books on my bookshelves that talk about it. You can't adequately address this in a whole sermon series, never mind one sermon. I wonder how many of you remember a few years ago a song by Neil Diamond called Pretty Amazing Grace. Anybody remember that song? Is it just me that remember? A few people remember. That's a relief. I very nearly played it this morning and then I thought, no, actually I've got far too much stuff without stopping to listen to some music. He was playing with the idea of grace and he actually said that grace is the only language he has to understand or express anything of God. The idea of grace as something that's slightly mysterious and that is transformative and life-giving in that song seemed to touch something in people, people in the church, people outside the church. And in the circles in which I was moving at the time, an awful lot of sermons were born out of that song. And I make no apologies for the fact that today's sermon, or exploration, draws very heavily on two sermons I wrote out of reflecting on that song a few years back. One was a a sermon specifically thinking about God's grace to us, and the second was a sermon specifically looking about the transformative nature of God's grace in and through us. Now, given that that was two 25-minute sermons, I'm obviously not going to get through all of that in one sermon that's not supposed to be more than 20, but probably will be. But I think some of the key themes, actually, we can pick out in the time we have. 
And we need to start with the word itself. As we've already discovered, it has incredible layers of meanings. We talk about the swan as graceful, the dancer as graceful, as a person of, as having grace, by which we mean all sorts of different things. There are various words translated as grace in English language Bibles, but the two key ones, uh, forgive the pronunciation, you know I don't speak Hebrew, it, uh, one of them is chen, I can't even do a proper sound, despite living in Scotland for two and a half years, chen, which talks about God's undeserved election of his people under the covenant, something that God gives to people through the covenant. And the second word is charis, a Greek word, which can be translated as grace or gift, but which in its proper Greek meaning includes such ideas as rejoicing, beauty, charm, kindness, And it carries with it a sense of mystery, a sense of beyondness, as well as everyday concepts with which we are all familiar. Before I move on, it's probably worth saying that doctrines of grace exist in many different world faiths. It's not a unique concept within Christianity. But the way it is understood in Christianity is especially beautiful and wonderful. You may have come across the expression prevenient grace in talking about God's grace. The idea that God's grace pre-exists before anything. That God's grace is active long before, chronologically speaking, we can sense it or to respond to it. It echoes something of the idea we thought about as God as the prime mover, God as the ultimate being before all things. In the beginning, God. God's grace, God's creation. I think that's important, especially if you want to talk about conversion to Christ, Because this is orthodox Christianity that says long before a person experiences any sense of conscious spiritual awakening, long before they have any idea of sinfulness, God's grace is already at work. This should challenge us and it should encourage us. It is not we who take people to God God is already active in the hearts and minds of every single person we meet and every single person we will never meet. One of the differences between Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity is the emphasis put on grace and sin. Western Christianity has talked about original sin. Eastern Christianity talks about original grace. I think I have leanings to Eastern Christianity in that respect. Grace is understood by Christians as having two primary purposes. The first one to which the majority of energy seems to be devoted is about forgiveness of sins. And only secondarily to that do we think about the transformative work of grace in the hearts of believers. Believers remain imperfect, 
believers remain sinners. Believers remain capable of stumbling and tripping other people up in their walk of discipleship. And so we need to think, as we look at these three Bible readings, what it is that we can learn about the transformative nature of grace within us and how that might be expressed in our real lives. don't know how familiar you are with those stories. Um, how many people know the Mephibosheth story? Just so I've got a clue. Ah, you see, you can spot the people who went to Lark Hall and such like. You can spot the people like me who did scripture at school. It's not a very well-known story, the Mephibosheth story. That's probably just useful for me to know that before we go any further. I'm assuming people are familiar with the other two stories. There's not anybody who thinks, oh, I've never heard any of those before. That's, that's good to know, because there could be. We forget what people know and don't know. The first thing we notice about any of these stories is that what happens is unexpected. If we read the account of King David's reign in 2 Samuel, we would discover it's a story full of violence and anger. There is any amount of treachery and betrayal And David regularly had people executed him if they crossed him. Get on the wrong side of David and you were put to death. To be summoned by David then would have made the most brave, courageous, upright person very frightened. So how would Mephibosheth have felt? Well, I realise that most of you haven't got a clue how Mephibosheth might have felt. Mephibosheth's grandfather, Saul, and David had been bitter enemies. And Saul had been absolutely furious when Jonathan, his son, became friends with David. And if you know that story, it's full of sadness and struggle and ugliness. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, and he had only been five years old when his father and his grandfather were killed in a battle led by David and his own nurse or nanny trying to carry this little boy to safety had dropped him which resulted in permanent injury to both his legs and he could not walk. So here we have a disabled man whose disabilities are the indirect result of David's anger being brought in to see the king by summons. Whilst we don't know what he did expect, we can be fairly sure he was not expecting what happened next. Or what about that story in parenthesis in John's Gospel. Have you ever noticed when you look in the Bible, there are brackets around that story. It's not actually in the earliest versions of John's Gospel. And yet, this is one of the most powerful stories and best-loved stories about grace in the whole Christian canon. We don't know anything about those people who brought her. We do know that somehow or other they caught her in the act 
we know that the man seems to have escaped unscathed. But she was dragged before Jesus by people who said, this is what the law says. She deserves to die. And so they brought her to Jesus, a holy man, for him to say, absolutely right, take her out and stone her. She must have been terrified. She must have stood there thinking, this is my last day on earth. And we don't know her backstory. We don't know whether this was the first time that she and whoever it was had been together. We don't know if she had been coerced into that situation. We know nothing about her. All we know is the law said she must die and people brought her to Jesus saying, right then, come on, know your colours to the mast. Where do you stand on this? Or what about the woman at Bethany with the jar of expensive perfume? We have to be careful not to read into this story. Each of the Gospels has slightly different anointing stories. But what we do know is she came and she did this and the disciples were furious. How dare she do such a thing? What a waste. This could have been sold and the money given to charity. That would have been good, wouldn't it, Jesus? And Jesus' response, if we're honest, is probably not what we expect. Remember, Jesus has talked so much about his concern for the poor and the people who are marginalised. But in this moment, he can see something else is going on. And he permits this woman to waste the perfume because he sees something beautiful in what is going on. There is something about God's grace that transforms the attitudes and actions of individuals in ways that might be unexpected. Grace is not going to be contained by convention, but it breaks through in ways that are surprising and beautiful, life-giving, life-affirming. So grace is unexpected. Secondly, grace is unsought. In each of those three stories... The person to whom grace is shown has not gone out and asked for it. Mephibosheth was living a quiet life, well away from the gaze of the king. The woman caught in adultery did not ask for clemency. She did not make excuses. Indeed, until Jesus directly addresses her, she remains silent. It's actually an interesting prefiguring of what Jesus did before Pilate. And the woman who anointed Jesus, did, Jesus hadn't invited her. He hadn't asked her to bring perfume. She just turned up at this dinner where Jesus was and she did what she wanted to do. 
Grace is not a response to direct request. It might prompt a response, but I can't come to you and say, please be gracious to me. Well, I can, but there's no compulsion on you to respond in the way I would hope for. So it's unexpected and it's unsought. It is also undeserved. You can't earn grace. You can't make yourself worthy of it. And I guess that is most obvious in the story of the adulterous woman. She didn't deserve mercy or clemency in the eyes of the law, let alone pardon and the chance of a new life. She had done wrong, and there was a clear dictate as what that meant. But it's also true in the other two stories. It's not just people who do wrong to whom grace can be offered. Mephibosheth hadn't done anything to deserve what David did for him. And David did a lot for him. He gave him back his grandfather's land. He made provision for him to eat in the king's household. He basically said, you are one of us. Come and eat with us. This is how important you are. And as far as we know, there is nothing that Jesus had ever done for that woman that earned him the right to be lavishly anointed with her perfume setting aside any theological things Jesus did, the human Jesus, as far as we know, hadn't met her before. You see, grace has nothing at all to do with merit or with reward, but it's motivated by something inside along the lines of kindness and generosity and mercy and love. And grace has a fourth characteristic, which is that it is unstinting. A lot of un words today. And I know that's a bit of a contrived one, but bear with me. And perhaps in this one, it's the woman with the perfume that stands out the most clearly. If we look at this story and the similar accounts in other Gospels, this jar of perfume effectively represented the woman's pension plan. It was her life savings. It was her future. It was all that she had. She wasn't giving from her plenty. She was literally pouring away her security. I wonder how many of us would go out and spend all our money on something and pour it out. That's what she was doing. So when you set that against the reaction of the disciples, you could have sold that and given the money to the poor, their reaction is the more stark. It was unstinting what she did. She didn't think about the consequences. She just poured it out. And even for David, the rich, powerful king, who had his enemies done away with at a stroke, this was no empty gesture was something quite considerable to give Mephibosheth back his land. And I suspect eating at the king's table would cost a fair bit over a lifetime. And of course, when Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who had brought along the adulterous woman, it cost him dearly. 
the growing resentment and hatred towards him amongst the religious authorities was fueled by his wise insight and his merciful response. He could have said, you know, you're absolutely right there, folks. Absolutely, she deserves to die. Off you go. And that would have boosted his credentials as a law preserver, though it would have undermined his very purpose for coming. But he continued his pattern of grace, of mercy, and love, giving this woman hope and a future, whilst at the same time sealing his own fate. He took a step nearer to being executed. What strikes me perhaps most significantly about the impact of each of these stories is that they have ripples that spread out beyond them. If we'd read on in 2 Samuel, and I think probably most of you need to go home and do that because, you know, Bible knowledge is abysmal. But if we went on and read in 2 Samuel we would find two more significant references to Mephibosheth as we see how that grace moved on. In chapter 16, Ziba, or Ziba, how we say it, the servant who David spoke to, accuses Mephibosheth of treachery. And David is true to form and he gets really, really angry. And he says, right, that's it. Everything I've given to Mephibosheth is, is taken away again. And then, three chapters later, Mephibosheth has the chance to defend himself. And it turns out that this is not true, what Ziba has said. And there's David, this big, powerful king, kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. He's got the land, and he's given it to Mephibosheth, and then he's given it to Ziba. What does he do? I know, he says, I'll split it between you. But something has changed in Mephibosheth and he acts mercifully, graciously towards Ziba. He says, no, 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 it's fine, David. Let him keep the land. I have the privilege of eating in your house. So it it transforms one and then it transforms another. It spreads out. This grace moves out. Okay, David was clearly still capable of great anger, but the grace he had shown to Mephibosheth led Mephibosheth to show grace to Ziba. The story of the woman who anointed Jesus ends with the words, this story will be told in remembrance of her. You know nothing more about her. She just disappears. And yet her actions continue to ripple through time to this very day. Her self-giving to the one who would give himself for her, inspires and challenges new generations to go on examining their own hearts, their own attitudes, their own minds. And the woman in adultery, she just disappears as well. And yet this story of mercy and grace, in parenthesis, is one of the most best loved and most told in all the Gospels. Why's that? I have a suspicion that this story of a God whose mercy provides such a response to God's law 
touches something deep within all of us who are all too conscious of our own shortcomings, our failures, our (coughs) sins. As the Apostle says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I began by saying there are two elements to Christian understandings of grace. That God's grace redeems and saves us from the consequences of our sinfulness. We'll kind of look at that a bit more next week. And it brings us into a renewed relationship with God. But secondly, it changes us, making us more like Jesus. And if that's so, that should affect the way we relate to other people. You see, there can be a danger that Christians are very quick to to seek God's grace and to appropriate God's grace themselves, but very slow to show it to others. This is not about what theological views we hold. This is about the attitude in which we hold them. We can all be guilty of legalism and judgmentalism. We can all be guilty of hypocrisy, wanting our own righteousness to be seen and applauded. We can all be mean-spirited, giving grudgingly, or only in response to a direct appeal or request, and then only to the extent that sort of fits in with what else we want to do. As the Apostle Paul says... We find it a rule that the good we want to do, we cannot do. Yet the wrong we do not want to do, we do do. We are all still a work in progress. Not one of us, not one person in this room has yet arrived at perfection. Because if we had, we'd all be in heaven. And we're not. Not one of us is entitled to judge. And yet... Every single one of us does. That's the reality. I'm kind of being a bit judgmental standing here saying this stuff. Not one of us is entitled to judge because not one of us is without sin. God's redeeming work of grace in all of us continues but is not yet complete. But all is not lost. We have God's assurance that the Holy Spirit continues to work within us, to transform us and equip us for all that God longs for us to do and be. We continue to be recipients of God's grace, which is unexpected, unsought, undeserved and unstinting. And that means that we must allow God's grace in the same way to flow out through us to other people, generously and openly. I'm never going to fully understand the mystery that is God's grace. And I'm never in this life going to become a faultless, perfect channel through which it can flow out into a needy world. But my prayer for myself and for everyone here is that all of us may continue to be transformed by God's grace so that through us and in us, God's grace, mercy and love may be experienced by other people. Amen.
We come now with our prayers for others. Let's pray together. Lord, make us quiet as we place into your hands those for whom we want to pray. We know that you love them with a greater love than we could ever imagine. In the stillness, we are here with you for them. As we recall the story of Mephibosheth, we pray for people whose lives are affected by disability, injury, or infirmity. We pray for those where cure is possible that they would receive skilled medical assistance to restore their bodies. And we pray for those who cannot be cured physically, that they will receive the support that is needed to enable them to live fulfilling lives. We thank you for the world work of the National Health Service in our nation And we pray for all involved in the various debates that go on about its future. That wisdom and compassion will guide their thinking and deciding. And we pray for the work of organisations such as BMS and the Leprosy Mission. Who reach out in your name to bring healing and hope to sick injured and marginalised people in some of the world's toughest places. As we recall the story of the adulterous woman, we pray for people whose actions, whose choices, whose circumstances have placed them outside the norms of the societies in which they live. We pray for those who come alongside prostitutes and drug dealers, not to condemn them, but to love them as you do, and to offer them grace and a hope of renewed lives. We pray that you would free us from attitudes that are judgmental and legalistic, enabling to see the person as who they are, an image bearer of God, and a person for whom Christ died. Please help us to move from self-righteousness that says we love the sinner and hate the sin to a humble graciousness that recognises our own need of forgiveness and of grace. As we recall the story of the woman who anointed Jesus pouring out her love and her security for this man who had touched her life 
We pray for those who give themselves wholly to God's service. We pray for all ministers seeking to share the good news of Jesus in a complex and confusing world where the clamour of competing voices threatens to drown out your still, small voice. We pray for our Baptist unions, thinking especially of those who work in the head offices in Spears Wharf and in Didcot, that you would give them wisdom and compassion in all they attempt And as we meet together in this place, in stillness and silence, we bring to you the names of those whom we love and for whom we are concerned. Let the healing grace of your love transform us so that we may play our part in the transformation of your world. Make us so obedient to your spirit that our lives may become a living prayer and a witness to your unending presence. Accept our prayers, spoken and silent, And make them our lived response to your grace. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. As our blessing today we're going to read together the words printed on the order of service. And then, as is our custom, sing our Amen. Our I agree to what we have said. God to enfold you, Christ to uphold you, Spirit to keep you in heaven's sight. So may God grace you, heal and embrace you, lead you through darkness into the light.